All right, I am excited to uh, share today from Psalm 51. Uh, so if you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 51. If you want to follow along on the YouVersion app, uh, just go to events, go to Church Together, and there's a place you can write notes, there's a place you can take notes, and um, there's even some extra notes and thoughts in there as well. So we're talking about this idea, this truth. It's more than an idea, it's a reality, because we see it everywhere we turn, especially when we look in the mirror, that there is this disease within us, this sickness of me that is suffocating us and killing our soul and abandoning, abandoning us from God. And we're all carriers of it, which is why Jesus came. We've talked about how this sickness is caused by selfishness. But today I want to talk about how when selfishness has had its way, it causes us great sorrow. And I want to talk about what we need to do with that sorrow because we live in a world that is full of sorrow because of so much of the selfishness that comes from this sickness. You know, on Thursday, I spent more time than I wanted to and certainly more time than I should watching this hearing in the Senate. And I don't know why I couldn't turn it off but as I heard both stories and both sides, my overwhelming feeling was sorrow. Sorrow for her, sorrow for him, sorrow for us. But there's good news. Because the God that we serve does not run away from sorrow. He comes and meets us in our sorrow. And then, through the power of His Holy Spirit, He transforms our sorrow into something so beautiful. Mourning, sorrow, turns to dance when the Holy Spirit comes within us. The oil of gladness, this anointing from God, replaces mourning. Mourning, Jeremiah says, is turned to joy. John, uh, Jesus says, and John says, we will weep and lament, but grief will be turned to joy. Paul says in Thessalonians that we do not grieve as people without hope. And those words remind us that even though sorrow may last for the night, joy comes in the morning. This sickness that is caused by self causes sorrow in us, but sorrow does not have the last word. We've just been going through this process of uh, interviewing people. It's probably taken about five weeks, and honestly, about five minutes in, I was so over the process. Because I realized that when you're interviewing someone, you have to do two things that I don't like to do and I'm not very good at. 
The first is that you have to judge people. And you have to judge them very critically and very harshly. And I don't like to do that. The second thing that you have to do is to say no a lot. And as a recovering people pleaser, saying no is not something that I get much pleasure from. So on Wednesday, when we all sat down and everybody was as wowed with my, as, by my guitar as I had been, I breathed a sigh of relief and said, it's over. And then we started to pray. And as we were praying, it was almost like in my mind, I went through every resume that I'd read and every person I'd met with and every interview we'd had. And I stepped back and I said, wow, God is still in this business. Person after person wanted to follow God, but something had happened that had broken that. And their life was full of brokenness and sadness and sorrow, but then God shows up and he turns sorrow to joy. And for me, that redeemed the whole process. You know why? Because I see that same process working in my life and every one of your lives as well. We are messed up, broken, sorrow-filled people. And that's not bad news. That's good news. Because God takes our sorrow and he flips it upside down and he makes us new creations who are full of joy and hope and even dancing, one of the verses says. And the question I want to ask today, though, is how does this process work? We're consumed with the disease of me. It causes us to suffer. But then somehow God gets a hold of us and he flips that suffering upside down and makes us new creation. How does that process work? I think there are three very, very simple phrases and they're found in Psalm 51. Before we start, let me give you a little bit of background to this, this chapter. So it was written by a guy called David, who is an incredibly powerful man. He owned and ran most of the world as it was known back then. He was a good and godly man. In fact, God said about David, here's a man who is after my own heart. It says, the eyes of the Lord scanned across the earth looking for a man whose heart was fully his, and he found David. But David, like us, was a carrier of the disease of me. For all that he did following God, he had this profound selfishness inside of him. And so one day he's standing on top of the temple where he lived. And he looks down and he creates another Me Too victim. He sees this lady, she's bathing, she's beautiful. He clicks his fingers and he wants her. And they come together and she gets pregnant and he gets scared. 
And rather than come forward and confess it and deal with that sin, he tries to cover it up. And this disease of me gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And so he tries to get her husband back from the battlefield so that maybe they can say that the baby belongs to him, but he's an honorable man. And the disease of me in him gets stronger and stronger and stronger. So he says, I tell you what, in order to make this problem go away, I'm going to have to kill her husband. And so he orders for him to kill. And the disease of me is getting stronger and stronger. And as it's getting stronger and stronger, the sorrow that his sin is causing is getting broader and broader and broader. It's affecting more and more people. And so he kills the husband. And the sorrow continues. The selfishness, the sickness within him gets deeper and more spread for a number of years until a guy called Nathan comes to him. And Nathan tells him this horrific story of injustice. And David's like, oh my goodness, that's scandalous. Whoever did this, we got to take them out. We got to address this injustice. And Nathan, with all the courage in the world, the courage actually that can only come from heaven, said, David, that guy is you. And it's in that moment where sorrow is not just out there, but sorrow is deep and very real in here, that David writes this psalm. The first thing he tells us about making this transformation from sorrow to joy is that it starts with confession. If we want to start to experience this change process, the first thing we must do is we must confess. One of the reasons that our country is so messed up is because we don't do very well at confession. In fact, we do really, really well at sweeping under the rug but we're terrible at confessing. This is what he says. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Will you purify my sin? For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day a night. This word haunt literally means that he is consumed with sorrow. When he's awake, he can't stop thinking about it. When he's trying to sleep, he's having nightmares about it. He's consumed with this sorrow. And the first thing he has to do is to confess his sin before God. Did you notice in that little passage that I read, there's, there's like this little dialogue going on. He talks about uh, my sin and your unfailing love. He talks about your compassion to God and my sin, my guilt. 
There's almost like a dialogue that's going on between he and God. And I think the fact that the dialogue is going on is incredibly helpful. My guess is that without looking to God in this, if he's just left alone with his own sin, his own brokenness, he's going to need some medication. He may even be suicidal because he is haunted with this sorrow. But the fact is, even in his sorrow, he's starting to look to God. I got nothing. I'm broken. I'm consumed. And he starts to look to God. And as he starts to look to God, that's what gives him hope. You know, I, this may be a little bit controversial. I don't know if I mean to be, but it is what it, was, what it is. If more people entered into a dialogue with God like this, we would have less need for psychiatrists. We would have less suicides. Because this word you, in the midst of all his me's, provides some hope. If, if we want to get out of this sorrow, we don't need more medication. And I know there's a place for that. We need more you. All, all of us have come across, been touched by suicide in one form or another. And I understand mental illness and, and how, how, how terrible that is. But sometimes a little bit of you is what we need to pierce the darkness of those moments. He's saying, me, but you. Me, but you. He's starting to confess to God that he can't do it on his own. He's not hiding from his stuff. He's owning it. I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me. Against you and you alone have I sinned. You know, that's not technically true. It sinned against Bathsheba. It sinned against her husband. It sinned against his people. It sinned against Nathan. But what he's acknowledging is that every sin is first a sin against God. There's no such thing as a singular sin, right? There's a sin against the person, but... But first, it's a sin against God, and so he's crying out for God. It's not just these people I violated. First of all, it was you. I confess it. I have done what is evil in your sight, and your judgment against me is just. I was born a sinner from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from within, teaching me wisdom even then. Purify me, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. This is the good news that happens when we confess, is that God wipes us. That's what purify means. And then he washes us. Made a mistake this week. I got a black-colored car which is great for hiding the dirt and things like this. And I got bombed by this bird, right? 
And so I stop at the gas station and I get one of the little squidges and I kind of do the whole car. And it made things worse. <laughs> because what I found out was that I was just smearing the bird droppings all over the car. I know it's gross, I'm sorry. What I should have done is I first should have wiped. <laughs> Don't take this metaphor too far. <laughs> I should have wiped and then washed, right? Because that's how you get a clean car. In the same way, that's what David is saying God does as well. He looks at those little blemishes, those spots. And rather than... Rather than allowing him to get worse, he, he wipes them clean. And then he washes the, the whole thing. Yeah, you know, it's like often when, uh, when some people have, have cancer, they'll remove the cancer, but they'll still have radiation because they want to wipe and wash. They want to remove that sickness the implications of it, the potential of it. It's what God wants to do with this disease of me, right? He wipes and he washes. The first thing we have to do to experience this transformation is we've got to confess it. If we get caught up in the me and not the you, we got nowhere to go and things get really desperate really quickly. But as soon as we start to look to the you, God in his grace starts to wipe, to purify, and to wash. We confess our sin with hope. He's got nowhere else to turn but to the mercy of God. He says, God, have pity on me. Because I'm at the bottom of a pit and I can't get out on my own. That's why I need you to have pity. And every time we call on the mercy of God, he comes and rescues us. But we've got to confess it. There is great hope in confession. Lord, help us to confess more. We confess it. The second thing is that if we want to experience this transformation, we don't just confess it. We got to clean it. We, we, got to, we got to stop doing it. One of the great things about the, the story of the adulterer who Jesus was brought to Jesus because she was in sin was that Jesus didn't say, uh, just stop it, I forgive you, which he did. He said, go and sin no more. We have to stop. We have to confess it, and then we have to clean it. God wipes, and then he washes. And to take the metaphor a little bit further, then he waxes. It, it, says, it says, you uh, wipe me with, with hyssop, which was like a bomb that was put on a sponge. And God waxes us to protect us from going back into that sin again. He's saying, confess it and then clean it. Don't go back there. He says, when you do that, 
you will be as white as snow. What a beautiful image this is, that our lives, that the sins that we've committed, that ruin us and mess us up, will be wiped and washed and waxed, and, and then to switch metaphors, to be, to, be, to be covered in snow. I don't know if you've ever kind of woken up uh, in the morning, you're going outside and it's covered in snow. If you live somewhere else, you have. If you lived in Florida, you probably haven't. But isn't that amazing? Just like a, a, a blanket has been dropped on the earth. No footprints, no colors, just beauty. And I love this picture of, of that being how grace works. That God just drops this, this blanket of grace upon us and says, you're new, you're forgiven, you're cleansed. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence. Don't ever take your Holy Spirit away from me. A better definition of verse 10 where it says, renew a loyal spirit within me, is make me faithful again. David's saying, God, would you make me faithful again? And I think that's part of the, this process of transformation, right? That God will make us faithful again. It's not just confessing, it's cleaning by saying, God, would you make me faithful again? I realized that I strayed, make me faithful again. I realized I lost, make me faithful again. I realized I hurt, make me faithful again. We confess it. We clean it. We ask God in verse 12 to restore to us the joy of our salvation. He says, make me willing to obey you. What he's saying here is the same thing that John talks about in Revelation, where he says, you've lost sight of your first love. He's saying, God, would you return me to that freshness, that newness, that, that intimacy of love? Restore to me the, the joy of my salvation. Make me obey you. I think he's onto something here. It's really important in this process. Because when love is strongest, our obedience is greatest, Right? I don't mean to embarrass Tracy or myself, which got her attention. <laughs> but, she's, yeah, she's about to be embarrassed. But when we first met, right, I was like a puppy dog, right? Because our love was so, um, so, so, so strong and fresh and new. It's exciting. Right? We would say talking on the phone till 3 o'clock in the morning, right? Now I'm in bed by like 9 o'clock, right? And it's not because I love her less, it's because I love her differently, right? David is saying, let's get back to that first kind of love. 
Because when I was first in love with you, and when, when, when love felt strongest, it was easy for me to do things that brought us closer together. Love is, when love is at its strongest, obedience is at its greatest. How do we walk through this, this process? We, we confess our sin that has brought the sorrow. We cleanse the things that have brought the sorrow. And then he wraps up by saying, Lord, I want to be changed from here on out. Verses 13 to 19. Then I will teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice or I'd offer one. You don't want a burnt offering. The sacrifice that you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Look with favor on Zion and help her rebuild the walls. Then you will be pleased with sacrifices offered in the right spirit, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will again be sacrificed on your altar. What, what David is saying here is I'm going to confess because I need you to, com- to clean me. But once I'm clean, I'm going to be changed now. I- I'm going to tell people about you. In fact, David is really specific on this in verse 13. I'm going to teach rebels, he knows who he wants to speak to, your ways, he says, I know what I want to say, and then they will return to you. I know what the outcome will be. You know, brokenness and sorrow has a way of clarifying our purpose. And right here, David is He's aligning himself perfectly to what God wants him to do, but he only got there through this this brokenness. He says, unseal my lips that I can tell of your goodness. Change me, change me. Let me tell others about the change that you have made in my life. In the process, he's realized one other thing. We'll wrap up with this. He realizes that everything that we can give to God doesn't really matter that much. In his old life, before this incident where the disease of me got so strong in him, it was easy for him to make sacrifices to God. He could give all kinds of things and animals to be offered to God as a sacrifice. But he realizes through this transformation, through this brokenness, that God doesn't primarily want our offerings. First of all, God wants obedience. God doesn't want us to go through the religious rituals that we think please him. He wants our heart. This change that David is going through leads to him giving more and more and more of his heart to God. 
And as he gives more and more and more of his heart to God, he becomes a changed man. We live in a world that's full of sorrow. No one can doubt or deny that. But we serve a God who wants to change that sorrow into joy. And we do it by confessing. We do it by letting God clean us. And then we do it by living changed lives before him. To go back to the car metaphor, God wipes away our sin. Those stains, that bird poop on our car. He wipes it away. He washes us clean, as pure and as white as snow. By calling us to go serve, by anointing us with this, this balm, this oil, He's waxing us. He's protecting us. He's covering us with grace. Our car is dirty, but Jesus cleans it. Our lives are a mess, but Jesus makes something beautiful from that mess. He wipes, he washes, he waxes. But you know the great news of this transformation, the great news of the gospel, the great news of grace, is that this wipe, wash, wax thing, it's not a one-time deal. I was talking to Pat about this the other day, and he's got something that I'm very envious of. He's got one of those passes at the car wash that lets him have unlimited washes. <laughs> Man, I could have borrowed that this week. <laughs> but the reality is that the God who wipes and washes and waxes as he anoints us is also the God of unlimited washes. <laughs> The disease of me comes up again and we get to take it back to be cleansed. We're driving through some mud and some mess and our lives get ruined and we get to go to him and he cleanses us again. We serve the God, not of the one-time wash, but of the unlimited wash. Amen? Amen. We live in a world of sorrow caused by this sickness within us. But Jesus invites us to live a transformed life of joy. Confess, clean, and change. Wipe, wash, and wax as many times as we need, because that's how grace works.